Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning. I hope you're doing well today. Thank you so much for braving the snow, making it out here today. We're glad that you're here, church family. And if this is your first time, thanks for checking us out and uh, seeing that this might be the church home for you. Uh, we're glad you're here as well. And I hope you know this too. Some of you have done this like hundreds of times, been to church services thousands of times. You realize going to church is dangerous, right? Not because of the snow. Because God might change your life. Think about all the people that throughout history have sat through a They didn't expect it, didn't know what was gonna happen. It got 180 degrees, they're going a different direction. God might change your career plans today. He might change your eternal destiny today. Let me pray as we open up God's word. Father, thank you that you wanna meet with us. God, I pray your spirit would move in and around this room and that you would speak to hearts in whatever way you desire to heal bodies. Speak to people that are believing lies and give them truth. Put, saturate their minds with your word. God, open our hearts so that we're open to be changed by you. Father God, I pray that, that you'd save somebody in this room today. God, I pray that you would convict hearts of people that are sinning. And God, I pray for doubts, that you'd remove doubts and give assurance of who you are and what you've done and what you desire to do in people's lives. God, will you move, please, in Jesus' name, amen. This was kind of a crazy week with the snow, wasn't it? Some of you are new. I met a couple after the first service. They just moved here, weren't familiar with North Carolina, how North Carolina responds in the snow. Here's what I'd explain to you. The reason why the news broadcasters are so like dramatic about stuff, they didn't get a minor in theater. That's not what happened. They're not trying to work that angle. And it's not just, you know, buying all the bread and the milk and we make all the jokes. People panic. Here's why. Past trauma. Some of you were here like, what, was it 18 years ago or something when people were leaving their cars on the expressway and a couple of you raising your, I see that hand. I see that. All right, I got you. I see your hand. Beth, I got you over there. And there, there was this trauma that happened. Some of you have seen the memes that have gone around from 2014 when Glenwood Avenue had their crazy deal. We got some of the memes up here. <laughs> North Carolina really was closed at that point. And you were here when that happened. Like it was unexpected. All of a sudden, boom, way more than we expected. So now, like this week, I got a call from my kid's school the day before it might do something. And they said, we're gonna release them early. I'm like, what are you talking? Like I have a job. What are you talking about? <laughs> You know, what's going on here? They're panicking. But here's the deal. This weather was great, wasn't it? Because it was like we got to see it, and then it was gone. It was awesome. Pretty, then see you later. We're great. And people are praising the Lord for that. I love that. But here's, I'm just going to do a little public service announcement as we get started in the sermon today, though. And just let you know there's some things you should do and some things you shouldn't do when it snows. There's some things you should do. You should start a fire at your house. If you have a fireplace, you should have a fire at your house. You should, you know, have hot chocolate. You should make snowmen. You should have snowball fights. You can watch a bunch of movies. If you get really bored and you want to make some memes about it, that's great. We'll all enjoy it. But there's some things you should not do. You should not go to Walmart and buy all the water. Okay, people? That white stuff on the ground is water, just so you know. You're going to make it. You should not, especially if you're from North Carolina, you should not, under any circumstances, leave your house and go on the road, okay? Can I get an amen? Steve, where you at? Now he's from North Carolina. He's not amen in that. All right, he's offended. All right. But if you do go out on the road, let me tell you what you also should not do, a little driving tip. Do not hit the brakes, okay? When you're driving on the road, your car turns into a sled at that moment. I remember I learned, I grew up in Michigan, and so I feel like I've got a little bit of authority to talk about this. I learned how to drive in the snow by doing donuts and parking lots as a kid. So if you're 17, don't listen to this part, all right? But then I was doing that. But I remember at 17 learning not to hit the brakes. I worked at the mall. In Michigan, they didn't cancel school 
unless you couldn't open your front door. Like there was so much snow up against it. Okay, so what we had was like an appetizer. That's not shutting anything down. And we had this one time, we had snow dump on us, and I worked at the mall at a men's clothing store selling suits. Like who's buying suits when it's pouring down snow? You know who? People from Michigan, that's who. And so I had to get to work, and, I, and the way that they would do it is they'd plow all the main roads, and then they'd just trust that the salt on your tires from the main roads would get the side roads uh, like taken care of, right? Well, this had just snowed. The main roads are fine. Main road in front of the mall, people are driving 60 miles an hour, you know, going through the intersection. I'm coming down the side road. It's got snow everywhere. I'm driving a Pontiac Grand Dam. I want to picture this. I'm coming up the hill. I do great coming up the hill. I'm going over the hill. I'm like, this is fun. This is awesome. Then I realize that light's red down there. Cars are just zooming through the intersection. And I panic. I hit the brakes, which increases my speed. Because now I've got a snowmobile, basically. I'm coming down, and I'm thinking, I'm going to die. That's not how the story worked out, in case you're wondering. But there's cars going through the intersection, and I'm thinking, can I make it through? Like, dodge all the cars? What do I do? I pulled the power brake, or the parking brake, and did a power slide, and hit the pavement, stopped. I made it. Those of you who are wondering. But right then, right then, it was, it was literally like, you know, a movie. One of those big salt trucks came driving through the intersection. I'm like, I would have been dead. You know, you learn to pray in those moments as well, even though I wasn't a Christian at that point. But in the snow, there's some things you should do, there's some things you shouldn't do. Today we're talking about prayer. Did you know with prayer, there's some things you should do and there's some things you shouldn't do? Jesus teaches us about prayer in our passage today and he starts off with the things we should not do and then he tells us the way that we should pray. If you have your Bible, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter six. We're gonna start reading in verse five. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you've got the Southbridge app, you know there's a Bible in there. Matthew chapter six, and we're gonna start reading in verse five. And we've been going through this series. We've called it Upside Down. And the reason why we called it Upside Down is because we live in an upside down world. And some of the things that we hear Jesus say in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five through seven, sound upside down to our ears. But what he's telling us is right side living in an upside down world. And what we've talked about recently is what real righteousness looks like. What it looks like, not just in our teaching, you've heard it said, but I say to you, but in our living. And last week we talked about that through generosity in our giving. And today what we're gonna talk about is in our praying. And look what he says in Matthew chapter six and verse five. And when you pray, and so if you're a follower of Jesus, he assumes you're gonna pray. He's not going, hey, by the way, you should pray sometimes. Going, when you pray, you must, absolute statement, you must not be like the hypocrites. This is how you should not pray. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. Sounds familiar, so we talked about last week. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Now that's really interesting. Especially when you consider what we're about to read. Some of you have grown up in church and you've read this prayer, prayed this prayer. You thought this was the only way to pray, some of you. We're gonna read a prayer that some people call the Lord's Prayer. It's not actually the Lord's Prayer. Jesus wouldn't pray this prayer for himself because he talks about being forgiven for sins. It's actually a prayer for us to learn not what to pray, but notice he says how to pray. And he says right before in the context, don't repeat empty phrases. How many people have prayed this prayer and violated the very context of what Jesus just said? without knowing even what they're saying, much less having their heart into what they're saying. Look at verse eight. And do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. This is how, not what, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here, Jesus is teaching how to pray. It's pretty amazing, especially when you think about what some of the other gospels write some parallel accounts of the things that Jesus does. And Luke chapter 11 is where you find the parallel account of this. And here, if you're ever in like a Bible trivia uh, quest or quiz or whatever, here's a great trivia truth for you. There's only one place in the entire Bible where Jesus' disciples ask him how to do something. This is it. Now, that alone blows my mind, by the way. Like, think about if you were face-to-face with Jesus, wouldn't you ask him some questions? Like, how to do something? Like, we know Peter was married. Peter, you didn't think, like, you could have a better... He invented it. You might want to ask the guy. He's right there. I've got middle schoolers. I've got questions. If I was face-to-face with Jesus, like, I just think if I had, like, Chip and Joanna Gaines come to my house, I'd be like, hey, should I put this lamp over here? I'd be getting on their expertise, right? Like, if you had Bobby Flay show up and you were... You probably wouldn't want to cook dinner, right? You'd have a cater, but uh, you <laughs> coming over and you're making... Like, if I was... I don't know how to make a lot of stuff. I'd be like, mac and cheese. It's, it's craft, Bobby. Hey, what do you think? Do you need some salt? Like, you want the expert's opinion. The fact that Jesus only gets asked how to do one thing and it's prayer shows us it's pretty important. And what Jesus does here is he tells them how. And he doesn't just tell them how they should, he tells them also how they shouldn't. And notice he starts off, he said, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray just so you can be, it's the stuff we talked about last week. Remember last week I taught you there are three different types of hypocrites. I put on three different types of masks. Some of you, that might be all you remember from the sermon. Don't tell me if that's the case. But my point, I was trying to make a point of, a lot of times we think of hypocrisy and we just generalize it, but there's different types of hypocrites. And the first one, I put on just a masquerade mask. That's, a general, that's the type of hypocrite most of us think of to have something different on the outside than what's on the inside. Matthew 23, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside's filthy, you haven't dealt with your hearts. And nobody likes that kind of hypocrite. Nobody in the church, nobody outside the church. Like Nobody wants to be that person, but everybody knows that person when they see them. The next kind of hypocrite's more subtle, we read about this hypocrite in Matthew chapter 7 when we talk about judging others. And this type of hypocrite is the person that can see sin in someone else's life. It's the speck in someone else's eye. Without seeing the plank in their own eye. They're self-righteous. They're proud. And that's why I put on a big panda head. Thank you for the text messages. Some of you texted me pictures of me with a panda head. And even posted on social media. Appreciate that a ton. But hopefully you got the point. The big head was proud. And, and the problem for that person, they don't see their own sin, but they can see others. But then we said, and I put on a Spider-Man mask because he's sneaky. And no one can really see this kind of hypocrisy because it gets to the motive level. Not just the actions of what you do, but why you do what you do. And Jesus was saying in chapter 6 and verse 2, don't be this kind of hypocrite. And he talks about generosity and giving, but it's why they give, because they're people pleasers. And oftentimes this type of hypocrisy comes from the life of a people pleaser. People pleasers, you're at war with God, just know that but we'll never confront you in the church because it looks like service. It looks like surrender. It looks like you're doing stuff for the good of others, and sometimes you fool yourself. That's the kind of hypocrisy Jesus is talking about here in prayer. He says, don't be like that. Instead, here's what what real, authentic prayer looks like, and we see in our passage today at least three characteristics of that. And the first one is this, is that authentic prayer is relational. He starts with our Father. Authentic prayer is relational. And remember, he started this whole thing, this whole section I told you last week, verse one sets up verses one through 18. And he talks about giving, and he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting. We'll talk about fasting next week, but he's making the same point through the whole thing, but then hitting these different topics. 
And remember he started in chapter 6 and verse 1 with the word beware. It's a warning. Do you ever live in light of like, like something dangerous could happen? I had, a, I had the flu. It was about two weeks ago. I went to the doctor. Doctor came in with a mask on. Not quite a hazmat suit, but you could tell he was afraid of me. His first question was, I've got to ask, have you been to China? Look, I got the cough and I'm tired. I don't have the plague. Some of you, you know what it's like when you get sick at your house. Is, you, do, is anybody married? Don't raise your hand. Don't want to cause any problems. Anybody married to people that when you get sick, they start spraying Lysol all over the place, <laughs> treating you like you need to be disinfected, and go sleep in the other room. I see y'all looking at each other right now. You don't know what I can see. I got you. Yep, we got some marital stuff going on here. I got you. Raising hands. Oh, man. I'm going to keep moving. But he asked me about China. You know why? Because the coronavirus. Some of you have seen that, right? You've got, most of you guys have seen that? Just nod your head so I know how much of this I need to talk about. How many of you have seen, have you seen the cruise ship that they had? The Diamond Princess Cruise had 3,700 people on it. Can you imagine? Just imagine you went out for a cruise and you were going to spend time with your family, make some memories, enjoy life, vacation, and you hear on the mainland there's, there's a plague, a disease. And so they keep you on this boat so you don't get it. Last I heard, there were over 600 people on a boat that were infected. Can you imagine the first person gets sick and you're walking out on the deck and you don't think it's you, but you start coughing. Everybody's looking at you now, right? That guy's coughing. What's the temptation? Cover up your symptoms. You ever been around somebody who is sick and then they come and they're, they're like hacking up. They're, you, you, everyone knows they shouldn't be around people and they're going, no, I'm not contagious. You're like, oh, whatever. <laughs> Lysol people, please get this. <laughs> And Jesus is going, beware. See, here's the reality. We all do live in close, close quarters in this life, and we all have the same disease. It's called sin. And we all try to hide the symptoms. Some of us that aren't Christians, we try to hide it, but just showing how socially aware we are, how, how we would never do some of the, and it's a lot of self-righteousness comes out of that, even for non-Christians. For people that are in the church, a lot of times we try to show how righteous we are. One of the, one of the great defenses we have is prayer. And what Jesus is saying to us here is don't pray like that. Pray like this. It's relational. That's why he says, our Father. See, when we hear that, many of us, especially if you've grown up in church, that sounds so like, of course, he calls him Father. But you've got to hear this from first century ears. This was revolutionary to pray this way. See, in the Old Testament, God was known as Father. Fourteen times in the Old Testament, God has addressed his Father. But, listen to this, 14 times in 39 books, by the way, it's 250 times in the New Testament, over 250 times. Fourteen times in 39 books, you read it yourself, not one time will you find an individual calling God their Father. It's always talking about a Father of a nation, like God's the Father of all creation. You'll hear some people say, even not Christians, we're all God's children. There's a sense in which that's true, because we're all created by him. But you know what you never hear people say? We're all children of wrath. The Bible says that too. That we're all children of malice. That's true too. And what Jesus is talking about here when he calls God Father is he's not talking about just this general creation. He's not talking about Father to the nations. In fact, many Bible scholars believe that Jesus is actually preaching in Aramaic. Let me tell you why that's significant. The New Testament's written in Greek. But the common language for Palestinian Jew was Aramaic. And so most believe that Jesus preached in that. And that means the word that he used here is the word Abba, which means Papa, Daddy. It's an incredibly intimate term. Now that's really significant when you understand that many Jews at this point 
wouldn't even say the name of God. The covenant name, the Old Testament name, Yahweh, they wouldn't pronounce it. They made up another name, Jehovah. That's a made-up word. So that they would be reverent to the name of God. In fact, there's a sect of Judaism that believed only one person could ever say the name, and only on one day it was the high priest on Yom Kippur when he went into one place, the Holy of Holies. And when he went in, he would pronounce blessings over the people, and the people would stay out in the courtyard, and as they heard every blessing being pronounced, they fell prostrate because of reverence for the name. Now, there's something to be learned about that. They valued transcendence. They valued God's lordship, that he was holy, that he's other, and sometimes we make him just like a buddy, and that's not true either. But in order to truly understand the intimacy here of God being close with us, you've got to understand their view of transcendence and what Jesus is saying here. When he says, Father, he's calling out to him, Abba. In fact, if you watch Jesus' prayers through the whole New Testament, every time except for once that he prays, he addresses God as Father. And he's teaching us to pray. Father, I pray they be one as we are one. When you pray, our Father who art in heaven, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There's one time he doesn't, though. Some of you know it. Do you know it? It's when he's about to become your sin and my sin and fellowship with his father is about to be broken. And he quotes Psalm 22. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time, though, it's father. And what Jesus is saying here is not only revolutionary that he calls Jesus father. Remember, this isn't Jesus' prayer. This is a prayer for us. He's teaching us how to pray. He's telling you to call him father. So it's one thing for God's only begotten son to address him as father. I only do what the father tells me to do. The father and I are one. But he's telling you if you're one of his children. And by children there, it's not just one of his creation because of the word he's using here. If you've been adopted into his family. And you think about adoption. Some of you have been adopted. Some of you have adopted um, children and Here's one thing that I've learned. Um, adoption's expensive, unfortunately. I've had friends that have adopted in China, Russia, like overseas, tens of thousands of dollars they spent to adopt. And you think about it, like, like imagine God called you to adopt. Imagine you were watching the news and you saw the Diamond Princess cruise line and you saw a little girl on the boat who hadn't been infected yet and you felt like God was calling you to adopt that child, little Anna. And you saw her sweet little eight-year-old girl and you saw her face and you thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get her off, I'm gonna rescue her off that boat. We're going to bring her into our home. We're going to adopt her. And you investigate and you find out what does it cost. And they tell you, the only way that we let passengers off this boat is a passenger exchange. You have to give one of your biological children in order to have this child off the boat. You going to do it? Don't answer. Most of us probably won't. But that's what God did for you. He gave his only begotten son He became sin who knew no sin so that you could become the righteous, so you could be healed from your disease. So you could be adopted into his family. And the way that Paul says it in Galatians, in Galatians chapter four, starting in verse four, is like this. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, that's God's perfect timing. God sent forth his son, his only begotten son. This is the Christmas story. Born of a woman, born under the law, And here's the gospel story of the cross, to redeem those who are under the law so that, here's the reason, we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, and it could be daughters as well, sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. God is relational because God is your father. Now some of you, that doesn't sound that great. Maybe you had a bad dad. 
None of us had a perfect dad. I'm sorry, but let me address the fathers that are here today and tell you this. One of the most important roles you'll ever have in life is to be a father. Like, think about what, you think about your job, your marriage, your relationship with friends, your co your siblings. Like, what other time do you share a title with God? And so what is a father supposed to do? A father's supposed to be a reflection of our heavenly father. Let me read you this quote about what a father is. It's from Doug Wilson's book. It's called Father Hunger, if you want to look the book up. But here's this quote. It's one of the best definitions I've ever seen. What are fathers called to? He describes a father by saying, fathers give, fathers protect, fathers bestow, fathers yearn and long for the good of their children. Fathers delight, fathers sacrifice, fathers are jovial and open-handed. Fathers create abundance, and here's an example of sacrifice, and if lean times come, they take the leanest portion themselves and create a sense of gratitude and abundance for the rest. And what you see in this passage is that all these descriptions of father. What does a father do? A father protects. Lead me not into temptation. Guide me. A father provides. Give us this day our daily bread. Father who knows and he cares. Verse 8 said that he knows your needs before you ask him. So then let me tell you this about prayer. Prayer is not an update session with God. Hey God, let me tell you how it's going down here. We need your help. He's up there like, I know. I'm waiting for you to come to me because I want your heart. I don't need your information. When you're praying to him, it's not a time of just going through your list and updating stuff and, oh, well, my toe hurts. And He wants your heart because prayer is relational. But why do we struggle in relationships? Why, why, why don't we relate more? Many of us, we treat our relationship with God kind of like I do gardening. I like to think that I could garden. I made a garden box one time, didn't have any illustrations to share with you. Saw, nails, like all kinds of dangerous items. Not one illustration. No, it's been about five years, so I'll tell you about the garden box. If you come to my house, you will look out in the backyard. You will see a garden box out there, but you will not find any vegetables. Here's why. Because I decided I thought it'd be a good idea to garden. And so I made the box, nailed it all together, put it in the right spot where the sun would go. YouTube did everything, real research. Put it out there, put some soil in it. My wife likes to cook. I thought she could have some carrots and tomatoes and herbs or herbs, depending if you're reading it or saying it. And, and then... So I had to plant these seeds out there. And then some animals came and ate it. <laughs> the last time I touched it. <laughs> I really have a garden. Some of you really have a relationship with God. But sometimes something happened. Time went by. You like the idea. I like the idea of gardening. I like the idea of the benefits of eating fresh fruit right out of my backyard. But I don't want to do the work. And I don't want to cultivate it. And relationships take work. And what God wants is relationship with you that takes work. Can you think about any relationship you could have where you didn't communicate from the heart level with that person and you'd have a good relationship? I'm not talking about a business partnership. Some of us treat our relationship with God like that. I'm talking about intimacy here. Like my wife and I, we're gonna celebrate, the Lord willing, Jesus doesn't come back, one of us doesn't die, 20 years of marriage in July. Can you imagine if we got married 20 years ago? Oh yeah, thanks, appreciate that. It's mostly her, but I appreciate that. First of all, this, and she don't say amen, honey. I'm not even the same person I was 20 years ago. Could you imagine if we got married at the altar, we committed to one another, we have a relationship, it's real, but then we didn't really talk that much. Like, we, we did celebrations together, and we talked before meals, and we'd text each other about the kids, and when there was a big need or we needed each other's help, we'd reach out to one another, and then we're supposed to come together at 20 years and celebrate? But we never shared our, our vulnerable stuff, like our our heart's desires. We never talked about when we were upset with each other. 
We never had conflict. Never talked about doubts. Never talked about dreams. Never talked about wonders and risks and and how can we if we don't relate with like you have doubts about you of course you have doubts about God. You're human. Do you talk to him about it? Of course you get angry with God. Do you talk to him about it? He wants you to talk to him. The Bible says like a child. In fact, an extra resource from this sermon, you might go and look at Paul Miller's book, uh, A Praying Life. And he spends about five or six chapters talking about what it's like to relate to God like a child. And he talks about coming to God with anything and everything, coming messy, you don't have to have it all figured out. He talks about asking about big stuff, little stuff, like asking about everything. That's how God wants you to come to him. He's your father. You think about, I remember I was reading the book this week and it reminded me of a time when I was talking to my dad and I was talking, he was watching a baseball game. I don't like baseball. Maybe it's because of this conversation. But what ended up happening was he's watching the Detroit Tigers. He loved the Tigers. And that is about the slowest sport I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Thank the Lord they instituted a pitch clock. They didn't have that back then. And they're pitching. And so I'm asking my dad, like, how do they know? Do they have any idea what the pitch is going to be? What's the catcher doing with his hands? How do, somebody stealing the signs? Didn't ask that. Just a cheap shot at baseball. Um, <laughs> we're watching the Astros. So we're watching the Tigers and... Uh, I'm asking questions. I'm just pelting him with all these questions. How many balls? How many strikes? How does he know what he's going to do? What's the guy down there doing? Da, da, da. And finally, my dad said, son, could you just not talk for a couple minutes? <laughs> Which, as a parent, I understand, okay? Not bad as my dad. But let me tell you something. Your heavenly father, that's not how he relates with you. He says, pray without ceasing. He, there's never a time he doesn't want to hear from you. He always wants, because he wants relationship. I was, while I was reading that book this week, I went to pick up my kids from, from early release from school. Got them, I didn't want to go make them lunch. And so they got in the car. I said, hey, we're going to McDonald's. They were pumped. They were excited about McDonald's. I said to Janie, our 10-year-old, I said, you can have anything you want. Ask for anything you want. She goes, can I have a horse? <laughs> I was like, I meant on the menu. Can have, like on the menu over here. And we got her a Happy Meal. God's got a sense of humor. Do you know what the toy was in the Happy Meal? It was a plastic little horse. <laughs> Janie was not amused, though. I goes, you got your horse. She's like, Dad, come on. That's not what I meant. Plus, who knows what's in that burger? At any rate, just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Delete. <laughs> but do you know what I appreciated about it? I appreciated that she's not afraid to ask. You know what happens to some of us? We get jaded. Like, you might ask God for big things at one point in your life, but you don't ask for big He don't want, he's not, he's not gonna save a whole city. He's not gonna, too, they got too much cancer. They're not gonna reconcile that marriage. Do you know who we're talking to? You have a father with unlimited resources who wants to be generous with you. Ask him. He's relational. Not only is he relational, he's transformational. Did you see these requests? There's six requests in this prayer. The first three all have to do with God. Let me read you those three. Not only is prayer relational, our second point is transformational. Verse nine, he says this, pray then like this. This is how you should pray. Our Father, there's relational in heaven. And here's, here's the transformational. Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? It's an old English term. It just means this, set apart. Do you know what you're praying when you pray this prayer? Not only that we not use the Lord's name in vain, like your name be set apart, but we're praying for personal transformation. Remember our context, Matthew 5, 16. People would see our lives and it would reflect our Father. They'd glorify our Father in heaven. So what you're asking for is transformation in your own life, that your name would be set apart because of the life that I live. That people would see my life different than the rest of this world's and then they would glorify your name, Father. Your kingdom come. Do you know what you're praying when you pray for his kingdom to come? Remember, kingdom in the book of Matthew is not geographical. It's not like draw a circle around the triangle. Well, I don't know how that works. But anyway, it's not just an area. It's the rule and reign of God in your heart. 
So when you pray for his kingdom to come, you're praying for salvation for everybody you know that doesn't know Jesus. When you pray for his kingdom to come, you're praying for his rule and reign in your own life. When you pray for his kingdom to come, you're praying for Jesus to come back. But the Bible says that he's not slow in keeping his promises. He could come back at any moment, but he's not willing that any would perish, and so he's waiting for people to turn to him. This is a dangerous prayer. Church is dangerous. You gonna pray this prayer? Don't do it without knowing what you're saying. Verse seven, and then it says, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? On earth as it is in heaven means this. There's no resistance in heaven. It's not like, hey, do your, do your will, I guess. It's like with joy the angels are pursuing his will. What is his will? His will requires transformation of our hearts because it would mean that we'd want, will means desire, we want his desires in our life more than we want our own desires because we trust him more than we trust ourselves. And remember our context here is not to pray for show. You think about all the temptations there are when we go to pray. You ever been around people before and you're impressed with their praying and think, I can't pray like that. I remember when I first trusted Christ, I was 18 years old, went to this church. They had prayer meetings on Wednesday night. They had youth group too. I usually go to the youth group, but I decided I wanted to learn how to pray, so I went to the prayer meeting. That'll mess you up, just so you know. There was a guy there that prayed in King James. Have you ever read the King James? King James will confuse Shakespeare, all right? King James is tough stuff. This guy's praying, thou is most beautifulest Lord. And I'm like, I can't pray like that guy. I don't know what his motive was. Maybe that's how he always prayed. I wasn't just impressed, I was intimidated. You ever pray for the sake, or been around people, maybe you don't do it, but you might have heard somebody one time that prayed and it was more like they were praying for the people around them than it was that they were praying to God? You ever heard the parent prayer? Probably not, because I'm making it up right now. But here's a, the parent prayer is when you're really, you're, like your kids are being sinful, because they've got a great propensity for that, don't they? Amen? All right. Please make me feel like I'm not alone. All right. And I'll pray sometimes, and I know that I've done this in my own heart, where I'm praying to my kids, not to God. You know, this one sister does something to another, their sin nature is just overflowing on each other, right? Like they're stealing stuff from me, poking each other, calling each other names, whatever. And I'll be like, God, I pray for these sinful kids. Usually do it with like one eye open, like you're watching them as you're praying. <laughs> Pray they would honor their parents. It's the first commandment with a promise. Do you know that? Do you know that, kids? And you know what it says next? They may go well with them. They may live long. So I'm like, so they don't die. Kids are gonna die if they don't start obeying. Yeah, Jesus says, don't pray like that. Do you know what happens? Whether you're trying to impress other people or you're trying to control other people, you put yourself in the place of God during your prayer. Because you're either trying to steal his glory or you're trying to do his role. In either case, God does not share his glory with another. Instead, he says, you go to your father, you pray to him in secret because there's something that happens, there's a transformation that happens in secret which then should overflow in your prayer life in public. Our executive pastor shared a quote with our staff a few weeks ago. I think he got it from Francis Chan, but I'm gonna give him credit because it's the first person I heard it from. As John Cullen, our executive pastor, he says that your public passion should never exceed your private devotion. And when you're praying, think about that. Is this really an overflow of the time I've already spent with the Lord and how he's transformed my life? And if he's transformed my life, can I pray like this? Your will be done in my life. Like a lot of times when I pray for God's will, I throw it up like a default. Like, God, do this and do that. But your will, kind of like, just in case I'm wrong. Like this is saying like with joy, going, we want what you want more than what we want because we trust you more than we trust ourselves. It's like Jesus in the garden. 
God, is there any other way? There's got to be another way for people to get to heaven other than me going to the cross. Is there any other way? Let this cup, this wrath, pass from me. But then the key word, nevertheless, when you can pray the nevertheless word, you've gotten to a point of transformation. Not my will, your will be done. See, prayer is relational, prayer is transformational, and prayer is provisional. Look at the last part of these requests, that prayer is provisional. Start reading if you got the slides up there. Verse 11, the first three requests that are made, they're all about God. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The last three requests are all about us. There's probably a pattern there for us too to go to God first before we just come with all of our needs. But then in all this afterwards is about our needs. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. That doesn't mean Jesus is pro-carbs. He's talking here about physical provisions, any physical provisions. Cancer, need a job, need food. Give us this day our bread. That's what he's talking about here. And forgive us our debts. And I'm just talking about your credit card debt there. He's talking about your sin. As we also have forgiven those who've sinned against us, our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so he's asking for spiritual provision. He's asking for physical provision. Because God is a provider. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord God, our provider. He provides everything for us. Food, manna from heaven, feeds 5,000 in the New Testament, and has a bunch of food in your pantry, I bet, at your house. And if not, he's the one who will provide for you the lunch you don't even know where it's coming from. He provides for us spiritually. He provides for us physically. You say, no, I work a job. He gave you the job. No, I had a good resume. He gave you the skills. No, I, I went to the classes. He let you breathe, okay? He's providing for you. Later, if you just scroll down in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 26, it says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And the answer is yes. Verse 33 says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So he says, you come to him for your physical needs. You come to him for your spiritual needs. Isn't it interesting that, that Matthew does use the word debts here for sin? And you don't have to raise your hand, but if you've ever been in debt before, you know, how did that happen? It's usually, like when our spending gets out of control at our house, do you know how it happens? It's not like from some big purchase, typically. Do you know what it is? It's this place called Target. And it'd be like, $25 at Target, $32 at Target, $18 at Target. And then you gotta get Chick-fil-A on the way home. Lord's Chicken is not cheap. And so you can get that, and you drive back, and it's like $32 at Chick-fil-A. And, and then you get the credit card statement, and you're like, I didn't do that! I said, $300 at Target? You're like, no, you did. It's just 25 and 18. And it's interesting how there's parallels to our sin. Because in order for you to understand your forgiveness, you've got to understand your sin. But what most of us do with our sin is we have this tendency to minimize our own sin. I mean, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody lusts. Everybody lies. Everybody says, I didn't hurt anybody. I didn't really spend that much money at Target. But you know what we do with other people's sin? We maximize it, especially if it's against us. So you know how hard it is to actually do what verse 12, do you, do you know what you're praying when you pray the Lord's Prayer? Did you see what verse 12 said? Let me read it to you again. Forgive us our debts as we also, as? Forgive me the way I forgive? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let me read you what Charles Spurgeon, old Baptist preacher, said about the Lord's Prayer. He said this, Unless you've forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. 
It's not like this is a unique spot in the Bible where this is at. Jesus says this multiple times throughout the Bible. He explains it. Interesting, he doesn't explain the rest of the prayer, but he explains verse 12 and verses 14 and 15. Did you see that? Look at verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what did Martin Luther say? We read our own death warrant. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying here. He is not saying you earn forgiveness by forgiving. What he's saying is that when you're forgiven, you forgive. But you know what? When you minimize all of your sins, you don't realize how much you've been forgiven. Do you know how difficult it is then when you've maximized everyone else's sins against you to forgive them? But when you realize the weight of your sin, do you know what your sin did? It killed Jesus. I don't care what you've done, lie, cheat, stolen, murdered, adultery, or it's all been in your heart, maybe one time you did a bad thing, it nailed Jesus to the cross. We watch movies as entertainment that use the Lord's name in vain, and we laugh at things that nailed him to the cross. We minimize our sin. Listen, our sin is dark, not because we're so wicked. It's because God is light. He dwells in unapproachable light. You know how much darkness he can have in his presence? None. It's not the heinousness, it's his holiness that makes our sin so weighty. And when we realize the weight of our sin, do you know what happens? Forgiving other people becomes far easier. When I was uh, reading about a month ago, we were in a section of the Sermon on the Mount that was talking about radical reconciliation. And I came across a story that wrecked me. It was this guy, his, his name was Carlos. Carlos was a gangbanger, drug dealer, and he was sleeping on this girl's couch and he didn't know the danger he'd gotten himself into. He said, I already had a couple dope houses. He was really trying to manipulate this girl so that he could get a dope house at her place. And he didn't know that her mom was a charismatic Christian and was praying for her like crazy. And mom called up one time and said, I saw a vision. There's a man living at your house. She goes, there's no man in my house. Mom, okay, that's fine. Got off the phone. Three days later, she calls back and says, hey, that guy that's at your house? <laughs> Moms, you know what I'm talking about. Is that guy that's at your house? He's sick. He needs to go to the doctor. Bring him to the church. I think God wants to heal him. About two weeks later, she calls back and says, I had another vision. He's in a coffin. That day, he had a heart attack. Went to the emergency room. The doctors wanted to do a surgery on him. He refused the surgery. Had a swollen heart. Um, said, no, I'm not gonna do that. <clears throat> then mom said, will you at least come to church? He agreed, I'll go to church one time. The girlfriend had told him, said, you don't have to go more than one. If you don't like it, that's fine. Just come one time. His name's Nelson. Nelson goes, I'll come one time. But that morning, when he woke up, he got a call for a deal. He's a drug dealer and gangbanger, and they said, uh, he said that his, the deal was for five ounces of cocaine. He didn't want to lose the money. He said, I'm not going to church. She said, well, take me. He said, you take her, drops her off at church. She said, well, you just come inside and see my mom. You've never met my mom before. He said, I forgot I had a gun on me. I walked up into this church. I hadn't been in church in a long time. He said, when I got to church, service hadn't even started. I saw this cross at the front, and I went down to the front, and I got down on my knees, and I said, God, if you're real, don't let me leave the same. And he said he felt this warmth go through his body. And the pastor came up to him and said, you go ask any doctor, you were just healed. Not only was he healed physically that day, but he trusted Christ. He was forgiven of his sins. But he had been a bad father. He had a son who he had been teaching how to be a gangbanger and teaching how to sell drugs, and he came home talking about Jesus and if you've seen people who have been radically saved, oftentimes it's so different for everybody around them, they don't know what to do with it. And so his son said, Dad, you're just on a bad trip. He thought his dad had taken some bad drugs. 
He said, I'm going to hold everything down. You'll come out of it. It's going to be okay. He goes, no, this is real. I've been changed. And he was trying to be a good dad, even a bad dad. They got in a fight. His son left. Three months later, he was at church, praising God in the back row. His girlfriend came through the back door, bathrobe on, slippers, and he looked at her. He said, what are you doing here like that? He said, Nelson Jr. has been shot five times. He's dead. His son was killed. Afterwards, he said it was the first time he heard the voice of the enemy tell him, this is your fault. You taught him to do this. You're the reason I he's dead. He learned God's truth. He realized it wasn't his fault. And 20 years later, he was the pastor of that church he got saved in. And he was sharing a testimony with a prison group. And the prison group, well, there was a part of it. There was a guy there that was named Carlos. Carlos didn't come that night, but he had heard about it. Carlos is the guy who killed Nelson's son. He had a 20-year prison sentence, and 10 years in, he trusted Christ and was praying for reconciliation with the family. Now he knew who they were because the guy came and shared his testimony and said, I want to meet with him. And they said they were going to meet together, and I watched the video of them meeting together. Carlos said when he got there, he said, old habits die hard. I drove into the parking lot. I was looking around like somebody going to take, I know this guy's a pastor, but somebody going to take me out. said he parked his car so that he can get away really quick. When they brought Pastor Nelson in, big guy, they brought him in, they sat him in a room, made sure his heart was right, and he said, God's forgiven me so much, how could I not forgive? He knew forgiveness himself. That's why he was able to forgive. He had been praying for this guy to get saved. But when they met, it was interesting. Because the mom came in, she hugged Carlos. This oldest son came in, hugged Carlos. When Pastor Vargas came in, Pastor Nelson Vargas, he came in, he just shook his hand, he goes, be blessed. And you could see this like hesitancy. And he just said, I'm sorry. Carlos said, I'm sorry. And he asked him for a hug. He gave him a hug. And they started talking. And Carlos said, nothing I can say is going to bring your son back. Nothing I could say to you justifies what happened. I was a child of wrath. I was a child of malice. I was believing lies. It was stupid what I did. Will you forgive me? And the pastor didn't say, yeah, I'll forgive you. He, he started praying for him. He said, I've been praying that you would be saved. You're an answer to prayer. He lays hands on him, starts praying a prayer of blessing over him, over his family. He says, I forgive you. I'm here for you. I love you. They start embracing. You had to see these two huge men. And then Carlos starts weeping. And he just starts going, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And you can't hear it in the video. But afterwards, Pastor Vargas, Nelson Vargas says, I told him, you're my son now. I thought, could I, could I have done that? The bitterness, the anger. Someone killed your kid. I remember how much I've been forgiven. I killed God's son. And I'm his son now. That's how you were adopted. Can you, do you have anyone you need to forgive? Is this prayer real? Because I bet most of you here have been in church, you probably recited it. You know what you're saying? You're saying, I want a relationship with you, Father. I want to be transformed by you, Father. I need you, Father. 